Hi, this is Peter, one of the producers from Future Hindsight. I'm excited to announce that we have been nominated for a Civvies Award, short for the American Civic Collaboration Award. The Civvies recognizes people and organizations who are making an impact at local and national levels and in youth communities. We are really excited about this and just wanted to share it with you. Tell your friends and your neighbors about Future Hindsight and feel free to reach out to us by emailing hello at futurehindsight.com. We love hearing from our listeners. If you want to learn about anything related to civic engagement, send us a note. Welcome to Future Hindsight. I'm your host, Mila Atmos. Each week, I speak with citizen changemakers who spark civic engagement in our society. Our guest today is Melissa Mark Vivarito. When she served as the Speaker of the New York City Council, she was the first Puerto Rican and Latina to hold a citywide elected position. She's the co-founder of the 21 and 21 initiative, which seeks to elect at least 21 women to the New York City Council in the year 2021. When I spoke to her, I wanted to find out how exactly gender parity and justice are related and what are we really missing out on when we don't have gender parity in government? Melissa argues that caring about gender parity issues is really not the same as electing a woman. If we want a just and equitable society, uh, the voices of those that reside within our democracy have to be heard, have to be reflected in government. And so women, being 50% of the population, maybe 52%, to have equity in governing is critically important as we're looking at budgets, as we're crafting policies and legislation. And the unique perspective and experience we have as women is incredibly important. So that voice missing it really, really is a disservice to our city, and it's a disservice to our democracy. It's clear why this is important. We talk about the barriers to running for office and what will ultimately help women get elected. Let's listen in. Thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for the invitation. A pleasure to be here. You have a unique perspective of having served as a speaker of the New York City Council, an insider's perspective of the gender imbalance within the New York City Council. What was that like? You know, it's it's tough, right? I think for me, the, um, this perspective is shaped by my upbringing, having been raised by a feminist mother in the feminist movement uh, in Puerto Rico, being born and raised there. So always within that framework of women, right, of equity, of justice. And so when I came to New York City at the age of 18 and um, decided to run for office and got elected back in 2005, there were 18 women out of 51 city council members. By the time I left 12 years later, and the last four years I had served as speaker, we were down to 11 women. We had seen an incredible drop. And I had been raising that as a concern when I became the speaker. In that first year, I said, if we are not mindful, we're going to see a drop in the number of women in office. And unfortunately, that came to be true. So when you realize that things were going to get worse in terms of the numbers, you sounded the alarm. As yes. you said, you, this is going to be a problem. What was the reaction? It was unfortunately not what you would have expected. 
there was always this fight about issues. And as long as someone embraced issues of equity and justice, then that was fine to support someone. And I just started to tell the players in the electoral process, whether it was unions or whether it was other organizations or parties, I said, you know, it's not just about being right on the issues. It's about equity and gender equity at that. Also, people of color being reflected in government is important as well. So in the city council, majority of members are of color. The Black Latino Asian Caucus is the majority in the council. That we had representation considering the city of New York is about 65, 70 percent of color, right? So on that front, we were good. But it was the issue of gender equity where we really were falling short. So I kept raising that as a concern. And I said, this is not just about being right on the issues anymore. Now it is also about gender equity. And, you know, people kind of poo-pooed it. That's what led me two years into my speakership in that last term to talk about and worked with uh, another colleague, Elizabeth Crowley, to found this 21 and 21 initiative, which was that uh, by 2021, which is the next big cycle in New York City, where we're going to have about 35 open seats in the city council, that at minimum we wanted to get 21 women elected. We would love to see us be at 25, 26. We have seen an incredible interest in women stepping up and saying, I want to run for office. So I think we pretty much have women in almost every city council seat that is opening up. Uh, We have several candidates that may be running. So that's a good thing. But, you know, we've raised that alarm. It's gained traction. And there are people that want to help and make sure that we have a more representative city council here in New York City. What is it that people are missing about women in leadership positions? A lot of people, when they think about gender parity, they have, like you said, these pat answers. Like, well, as long as you're right on the issues... That's good enough. But why isn't it good enough? Because of our experiences. I mean, look at the conversation we're having nationally right now on reproductive health and reproductive rights and these, you know, laws that are being implemented. It's all men that are making decisions on what I should be doing with my reproductive health. And that's just wrong. A core example, right, of, of why the experiences that we live as women in a work environment Right, when we talk about sexual harassment and the inequities, we live in a patriarchy. It's true. Our system was always set up where men were at the top and whatever men said, you know, men made the laws. And so we fall short. And that's the reason why I believe in representative government, whether it's women and people of color as well. Um, being in government, that, that has to be something that we focus on. The example of Sonia Sotomayor, the experiences that she has as a woman of color, being raised in the Bronx and the experiences she had, that is incredibly important to have that perspective on a Supreme Court. I'm glad that there is an understanding that we're falling short in New York City. We've seen the movement, right? The last midterm election cycle, historic number of women elected to Congress, historic number of women of color elected to Congress. But in New York City, which is supposed to be the progressive beacon in this country, and we don't have a woman in citywide office. We have 11 out of 51 in the city council. It's bad. It's not a good reflection. And so we have to chastise ourselves. We have to hold ourselves accountable. What do you think are the biggest barriers to entry for women when it comes to elected government positions? It changes. I know, for instance, when I ran for office, I ran my first race in 2003, didn't win that one, and then I won in 2005. But 
It really was true that women sometimes have to be asked five to six times to consider running for office, as opposed to men just, you know, automatically say that this is something I want to do. But when we talk about the last midterm cycle, I think that really shows how many women were stepping up and saying, no, this is a serious responsibility and I have a right to run and I have a right to be elected and I have a right for government to reflect, you know, my needs as a woman. There's still a lot of barriers. Sometimes it is about the networks, about asking for money. It's always an uncomfortable thing. I've never liked that as a candidate. I've never liked having you know, to raise money. That's why I think a campaign finance program is so critically important because it does level the playing field. And we have the best campaign finance program in the country is here in the city of New York. And that was very helpful to me in terms of my candidacies when I ran, of being able to get small donors to then match it. I think it's changed now to an eight to one match. So someone that lives in the city of New York gives a candidate $5. That gets matched eight times by the campaign finance program. Communities have been marginalized and left out of the process. It allows them to be competitive and to be able to build a campaign and have at least money to run a campaign, to get your message out there, uh, to get troops on the ground and knock on doors. But we deal with sexism each and every day. So it's always a challenge to have the voices of women heard and to allow women to succeed in whatever career they choose. And being an elected official is an incredibly serious responsibility, but it is a career choice as well. And it should be considered that. It should be ashamed of it. Because wanting to serve and serve your constituents well and your community well uh, is, is something to be admired. Yes, I agree. So tell us about what the 21 and 21 initiative is doing to help women get elected. We are a membership organization, so we do ask people to sign up and join. We do do networking sessions. We do provide trainings. So sometimes we'll invite someone in to do a training on how the campaign finance program works. Or we'll have someone come in and maybe give you some basic fundraising tips. And then just have a mixer afterwards, right? So just trying to create a safe space for the women to really give them skills and have an understanding of what it takes to run for office. So that's the way we've structured it. We now have seen women stepping up in pretty much every city council seat that's to be open in 2021. We just had an opening um, because of the public advocate race where Jamani Williams uh, won. His city council seat became vacant. So it was great to see that we had a whole bunch of women running in that race, you know, seat that was occupied by a man. Now we have a woman that won that race. And so now we're going to have 12 women in the city council. So we at least have made, you know, there's one, 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 one step forward. For instance, for myself, we have term limits in New York. I don't think it's a bad thing. I knew that my seat was going to become vacant. So the idea of using that as an opportunity to nurture someone, right, that I saw potential in, I looked and I recruited a young woman, right, who was actually working with me. I encouraged her. She never had it in her mind to run. And I sat her down and I said, you know, Diane, I really see potential in you. And you see potential in somebody and you ask them to consider it. I was able to mentor her and she was able to really learn the ropes. She worked in the office, so she knew the issues very well. She was my deputy chief of staff. So um, we were able to then successfully um, help her win that race. So I would hope that that's something that other women who are also in office would consider doing is to mentor so you mentioned earlier that uh, New York is a beacon, and yet here we are in a city council that is only 11 women. What is the power of a strong local example to take this on a nationwide scale? Like, how can a successful 2021 for city council translate to a national stage? 
There are national organizations, like Emily's List, which does work to get women elected, but they don't get involved in local municipal elections. We approach them and they just don't do local races. So that's where we said, okay, well, we have to then build our own network. And that's how 21 and 21 came about. So there are models already at the national level, and there is work that's being done successfully. You've got the Victory Fund, which helps get LGBTQ candidates elected to office. You've got Emily's List that works with women. You've got the Latino Victory Fund about making sure that we build Latino political power based on the changing demographics. And there's overlap between all of those, right? Because there are Latino candidates that, we're, that we support that are women, right? And also that are members of the LGBTQ community. So then trying to figure out how do we build strong partnerships with all of those groups that have similar interests and making sure that we are contributing to creating a more vibrant, strong democracy by electing quality candidates who represent the diversity that exists. So it's, it's been great. That's awesome. Not being white myself, I sometimes I wonder, what is it like for people who are white and they think they're representing people of color? I think they just don't know what that experience is. And I think they can't really speak to those issues in the same way no. because they have never felt that experience. Right. And and it's we have allies, right? Obviously, as a Latina, we have allies to our cause. As a Puerto Rican woman, you know, very concerned about what's happening to my island, you know, we, we have people that are in solidarity, right, that are allies. But it's very different when you're living that experience and what that brings to the table in terms of understanding how policies can impact your community because of that perspective you bring. That also, and I'm a very strong ally. The immigrant community embraced me strongly because I was a fierce advocate. The LGBTQ community embraced me because I believe in equality and justice for everyone. In the same way that I want it for myself, I'm going to fight for it for everybody else, as I say. I can't speak right to the experience of living undocumented in the country, right? But I'm going to fight like hell to make sure that we respect and that we create opportunities. You know, we have to allow a space for marginalized communities, historically disenfranchised communities, to be able to define for themselves what their needs are and then creating the space for that to be fulfilled. That's what I've done with my professional career. <laughs> yes, yes, you really have. How can we get people on board more largely about electing women uh, and not just persuading women to run, but make women more viable candidates for everybody. There are some men who won't even consider voting for a woman. And is that a lost cause or is it that we just need to get more women to turn out? Like, what is the strategy to actually get women elected? That's tough. I mean, this it's incredible right now. I'm inspired as a woman to see how many women are running for president. And running for office generally. Again, New York City keeps falling behind because we don't have any women in citywide office. And that's just, uh, I don't get it, but that's the, the, the issue. We have to keep forcing ourselves in these spaces. We have to continue to be seen in these spaces until we finally break that barrier. I know when I became Speaker of the City Council, I know what that represented for my community. Seeing someone that you identify with in the second most powerful position in New York City. I, you know, I, I saw it in the faces of those that I interacted with in the Latino community, and, and they would share with me, like, how significant it was for them to see themselves in that kind of a setting, right? And being unapologetic about raising the concern. People will say, oh, we sound like harpies or whatever. But having to constantly challenge ourselves to say, we're lacking in this area. 
Why aren't we succeeding? Being able to visualize ourselves and seeing ourselves running and we'll finally break that ceiling, especially the presidential. Um, I'm hoping we could do that next year. We have some really great women candidates who are in the mix. And there's always that conversation about, well, a woman can't really win. But uh, I don't think that's accurate. I think a woman could win. I agree. A woman could win. And in fact, women are winning. Yes, right? Women are. have been winning House races, Senate races, local races. So what is normally your rebuttal when somebody says, oh, women can't win? What is the term that they were using that like, I call BS? Um, <laughs> because again, I, like I said, I mean, my upbringing was very non-traditional for a Latina woman. Uh, I, I believe everything is possible. My immediate upbringing was that for a woman, there aren't any limitations. You can do whatever you want. Right? My mother never put pressure on me about having children, for instance. I was raised just saying whatever I choose to do with my life is my choice, and I have a right to that choice. So whenever anybody says something is not possible for a woman, to me, I laugh at it. That's never been my reality. Unfortunately, it's the reality for a lot of women. Getting them to be inspired and motivated uh, to feel otherwise takes effort. We have to bear the responsibility for create that space and those opportunities for other women, too. And I love your upbringing that's so encouraging of everything and anything that you set yourself to do. What is the source of your passion aside from your upbringing? Both my mom and my dad, Puerto Ricans, but born and raised in New York, actually. Separately, they went back to the island with their families, and then they met there and, and raised us. My father studied medicine. He enlisted in the Army at the age of 18, traveled the world, and decided that he wanted to settle in Puerto Rico and, and open his practice there. I would work in his office in the summers, and people would come to him without the ability to pay him. And he still would see them, and he still would talk to them. And sometimes people would barter with him. Like, people literally would bring something to him. So I was raised in that empathy and, and understanding and compassion if you had some sort of a skill, that something you share with others, right? He was that kind of a person. And then my mom on the other side, the activist, right, of being raised within a, a group of strong women, but also some of those women were lesbians. Some of those women were Afro-Boricuas, right? So they were black Puerto Rican women. And that sense of inclusion and that we all in this together, it's just something that was weaved and, and part of ingrained in me. So it didn't really bloom, all of that understanding, until I came to New York City. And I was personally being challenged that I was like, wait a minute, we have a responsibility to create more equity and justice in the world. How do we do that? And finding your place in helping build that. You know, I was a community activist once I left college and when, um, up to the point when I decided to run for office. And being in office, it's through legislation to create equity and justice, to balance a budget in a fair and equitable way. How do you provide services for education and services for the homeless? And how do you support a, a progressive budget that meets all those needs? And now I'm in back in private life, right, working at an organization that is looking to make sure government is reflective of those it governs and making sure that we get candidates to run and help those candidates get elected. Whatever path I've taken in life, it's, it's about figuring out how to, you know, how to create more justice. And it always comes from your upbringing. When I was on the island, I didn't realize all that. It's when you leave and that life experience you've had, you notice the impact it's had on the way then you live your life. All of this that I care about so deeply really, really started 
with that experience of seeing my father interacting with his patients, of seeing my mother, you know, interacting in that group of strong women. And it just all comes together. I am intolerant against hate and injustice. And I want to figure out how to fix it, figuring out how to make change happen. Yes, I like it. So if I want to get more involved for more justice for more women in representative government, what are two things I could be doing to move the needle? I mean, I think everything starts local. You know, I always tell people with women, with young people, you have to find out where's your comfort zone? What do you feel comfortable doing? Because there are those people that will go to mobilizations and get arrested. There are people that rather do social media or they rather make phone calls or they rather go knock on a door and talk to a constituent and talk about why they like this candidate. You have to figure out what you're passionate about, but everything starts local. For us in New York City, raising the awareness about the work that we need to do here locally. Right. In 2021, not only do we have the city council races, we also have the mayor. You have the comptroller. You have all the borough presidents. And you have the city council seats that are all up for grabs. And if we're not mindful of it, we will not have a government that's, again, reflective of gender equity. And so we need to do work on that front. And um, so I think that that's what I would tell women to do is, like, figure out how to get involved locally. If we want to see that re- uh, that change happen, then we've got to get involved, and you've got to figure out when, what, to what extent and what level you want to get involved. As we grow 21 and 21, as we increase the number of membership, you know, part of it is also to get some of those members to tap into campaigns when uh, we endorse candidates, right? And the membership is going to drive the endorsement process of candidates like we did for the open seat in Brooklyn. The membership is going to determine who gets endorsed, but then with that, we're going to want some of these members and some of these um, people involved with the organization to go volunteer, you know, with those campaigns. And and so that's the the extent is to really build a little army that's going to help candidates and help women, obviously, in this case, uh, women get elected. Right. Last question. Looking into the future, what makes you hopeful? Oh, boy. All this energy that we're seeing the idea that some of these young people are getting so engaged and are making a difference. Look at the climate change conversation with the Green New Deal and the Sunrise Movement, those young people, the young people after Parkland, how they've moved the needle on reforming our gun laws and getting young people registered to vote. I mean, there's power in all of that. It's really incredible to see the level of engagement and the participation levels that have increased considerably. That gives me hope, and I'm excited about that. And it has to be them that defines the future for us. We have to listen to them and take the lead. I've been very, very, very inspired by them. Because there are many days I wake up feeling just overwhelmed because the the level of attacks and the barrages against us as women, against us as Latinos, as people of color in this country, seeing this reactionary and racist wave, um, it's just horrible. But obviously I don't let it overtake me. We gotta keep moving forward. But the young people are the ones that have really been like, yeah, they're not letting up. They're just getting started. They're just getting warmed up. (laughs) So let's let's keep it up. Yes, I agree. I think they're only just getting warmed up. (laughs) It'll be exciting. Very exciting times ahead. Yes. Thank you very much for being on the podcast. Thank you so much for the invitation. It was a pleasure. I admit that I have not been thinking very much about the difference between allies who care about gender parity and actually electing women. But the way that Melissa described it, 
it's super obvious that these two things really don't produce the same outcomes. She's right. The lack of gender parity is a problem both for our society and our democracy. New York City is so lucky to have a fierce advocate like Melissa on our side. I admire her so much for actually doing something to improve our current gender imbalance in elective office. She mentors women, she started the 21 and 21 initiative, and she's looking out for all opportunities for our diversity to be represented in government. Next week, our guest is Lynn Paltrow. She's the executive director and founder of the National Advocates for Pregnant Women. We take a deep dive to a better understanding of what's at stake with fetal personhood and how does this affect the human rights of women. The anti-abortion movement often uh, claims that they are the newest civil rights movement, that what they're simply doing is carrying out a great American tradition of adding groups of people to the community of constitutional persons. The problem with that is that there is no way to treat fertilized eggs, embryos, and fetuses as if they are separate persons and add them to the Constitution without subtracting pregnant people from the Constitution. Until next time, I'm Mila Atmos. Thank you for listening to Future Hindsight. The executive producer and host of this program is Mila Atmos. The audio producer and music composer is Peter Fedak. The associate producer is Miriam Tsumbu. Find us online at futurehindsight.com and listen to us through your favorite streaming services. Mm-hmm.